from St. Anne's Catholic Church in Broken Arrow, you are now listening to Forming Our Faith with Deacon Kevin. The Forming Our Faith podcast was started a few months ago as a way for people and families in the Diocese of Tulsa and even beyond to be and to do what the Church is and does. The Catholic Church is not just a grouping of like-minded people. It's not just a charitable organization. It's not just an advocate for the voiceless and the powerless in the world. The Catholic Church is the supernatural society of saints whose home is in heaven and whose mission is to invite all those who make their dwelling anywhere else to join us, both in this world and in the next. Recipients of God's grace, the Church has the obligation to make that grace present and available to the world because that grace is the one thing the world most needs. Forming our faith is a humble attempt to articulate and describe that grace in ways you can understand, appreciate, and share. When I was in high school and was trying to figure out what I wanted to study in college, I decided upon the thing I was best at in school, mathematics. I wouldn't advise anyone to make decisions about their future in exactly this way. Though I was good at math, I can't say that I loved it, and I can't say that I was particularly inspired to dive more deeply into the mysteries of mathematics. I did what my professors told me to do, but my studies in college were more of a chore than they were a labor of love. There were some awesome insights during that study, to be sure, but for the most part, my degree in mathematics was about completing the tasks that had been set before me well enough to earn the approval of my professors. I bring this up because I'm afraid we can think about our faith as Catholics and the life of faith we live as Catholics in much the same way. We can get caught up in all of the information and all of the obligation of the faith and lose sight of the heart of our faith love for God, and awareness of God's love for us. We can lapse into the mindset that the Catholic faith is simply performing tasks and that the Church is a gatekeeper and overseer who makes sure we complete the tasks satisfactorily. We're so inundated with information that we can, and probably a lot of times are, numb to the formation the faith provides for us. The goal isn't just to know a bunch of stuff, but to allow grace to transform us into the people God created us to be. God doesn't just want heads full of facts about the Catholic faith. He wants disciples who know the faith and who live the faith, not as a heavy obligation, but as the one avenue to authentic freedom and genuine happiness. I know that for a lot of people, this is a struggle. Bishop Condorla has expressed his desire for every home in the Diocese of Tulsa to be a domestic church, to be the nexus of contact with God's love and the hub of evangelical activity of Catholic families. He has sought to recover this ancient vision of the faith and articulate that this mode of being and living is not optional, but at the very heart of what it means to be a Catholic. The struggle comes when we move from accepting this invitation to transform our homes into domestic churches to actually living and being as the domestic church. 
there's no real blueprint or instruction for how we're supposed to do that. And the reason is that the way we do that is unique to each home and to each family. To have instructions for this would require a manual for each family, particular to them. And that's beyond the realm of possibility. What this means is that families have to be creative and they have to be actively involved in forming their own domestic church. No one else can do it for them. No one else can do it for you. Making your home a hub of liturgical living, whether you're a parent or a child, young or old, in a home of many or few, demands your conscious, intentional, and concerted effort. And it's not enough just to put in the time. Your efforts have to be directed towards living in a way that makes sense within your home. Whatever that looks like for your home, it must include your participation in the Mass. Within the framework of the Church's teachings, there are several expectations that serve as the minima of what Catholics should do. These are called the precepts of the Church. These are binding on all Catholics, and they establish the basics of our Catholic religious practice. As precepts, Catholics are expected to confess their sins at least once a year. Catholics are expected to receive the Eucharist at least once a year, preferably, preferably during the Easter season. Catholics are expected to observe the days of fasting and abstinence established by the Church. Catholics are expected to contribute to and provide for the needs of the Church through faithful stewardship. Catholics are expected to observe the Church's laws about marriage. And Catholics are expected to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and to rest from servile labor on Sundays. These are the minima of the Catholic practice. But the thing about the minimum is that it defines the floor of what's expected. It doesn't say anything about growth in practice. The precepts of the Church tell us what we must do, but what we can do is boundless, limited only by our refusal to cooperate with the grace God wants to give us. If you've listened to the first six episodes of Forming Our Faith, you'll know that I focused on the Mass and that we're taking a pretty close look at the parts of the Mass. I've said that the goal for these episodes of Forming Our Faith is for your next Mass to be your best Mass. But I'm not sure I've really laid this out. It's really possible, and with your cooperation, it is certain that the next Mass you attend is the most transformative, the most impactful of your Mass of your life, the closest and most intimate with God you've ever had, during which he fills you with more life, more love, and more grace than you've ever been able to hold before. It doesn't matter if your next Mass is your first Mass, your hundredth Mass, your thirty thousandth Mass. It can and will be your best Mass. I've also chosen as the motto for forming our faith something Pope St. John Paul II said to young people. Never, ever settle for anything less than the heroism for which you were born. I'm convinced that the Mass and the graces that flow from it equip us to be the heroes we were created to be. If you've read any of the lives of the saints, you'll be struck by the beautiful diversity of the circumstances of their lives. 
The saints are from every country and culture, from every century since the birth of the church, speaking thousands of languages and representing pretty much every vocation and profession you can think of. The saints' lives are gloriously different, but there's one thing in those lives that links them all together. Devotion to and love for the Mass. The saints were equipped to live the love of Jesus Christ in their lives because they knew intimate communion with him in the Mass. They knew that without that intimate communion, they could not live their vocations as men and women, boys and girls, called to share Jesus' death and resurrection in the world. So the Mass is central. It's central to the life and worship of the Church, and it's central to being a saint. Catholic theology textbooks will explain that prayer takes on four basic shapes. Prayer of contrition expresses sorrow for sin, a firm resolution to amend one's life to avoid sin in the future, and determination to do penance to make reparation for one's sin. Prayer of intercession or petition asks God for the graces and gifts we and others need to live our lives of faith well and for supernatural assistance in the face of human struggles and suffering. Prayer of thanksgiving expresses gratitude for the good gifts God has given. And prayer of adoration acknowledges God as the only object of our worship, worthy of worship because of who he is, not just because of what he has done. The prayers within the Mass express each of these shapes of prayer at various times. And in the last episode of Forming Our Faith, we talked about the penitential rite, during which we confess, in general terms, that we are sinners in, needs of redemption, in need of redemption, and that God both desires and has accomplished that redemption. The penitential rite comes at the very beginning of Mass because the Mass is the worship of God by the people of God and we cannot stand in God's presence when we're in a state of sin. The penitential rite is our acknowledgement that we don't deserve to worship God, that we do not deserve anything from God except the just punishment for our sins, and that in his goodness and mercy, God has solved the riddle of sin, and he invites us into his presence despite that sin. After the penitential rite comes the first explicit opportunity to adore God, the Gloria. Many of the prayers at Mass are known by their first word or words in Latin. The Gloria comes from its first words, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. The general instruction notes that the Gloria is a most ancient and venerable hymn by which the Church, gathered in the Holy Spirit, glorifies and entreats God the Father and the Lamb. And notice the language of the instruction here. It's Trinitarian. The God we glorify is the one God in whom subsist three co-equal, co-eternal, co-divine persons. The opening line of the Gloria comes directly from the Gospels, specifically from Luke 2, 14. The shepherds in the hills on the outskirts of Bethlehem were watching their flocks on the night of Jesus' birth when the angel of the Lord appeared to them to announce the birth of the Messiah. And after this announcement, the heavens are revealed as full of angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Many Christian prayers are like this. 
They begin with some oration from the Gospels, and they continue with theological adornments that have been added by the Church that expand the implication of the Gospel. Think of the Hail Mary. The first two stanzas of the Hail Mary come from the Annunciation and the Visitation of Mary to Elizabeth, to which additional clauses have been added. The Gloria is like that, too. What begins in Scripture is fleshed out in the Christian life. There's something to this I think it's easy to miss, and it's a something that is at the heart and root of our faith as Catholics and Christians. What begins in the Word gets incarnated within the lives we live as the people of God. What follows the scriptural seed is in continuity and conformity with the Word, but also enlivens and enfleshes it. So we begin the Gloria with the words of the angels in St. Luke. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to people of goodwill. But then we leap out of scripture and into devotion. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give thanks for your great glory. All of those resonate with scripture and are consistent with scripture while also be go going beyond the words of scripture themselves. Why am I saying this? Well, because this is exactly what the church believes about Jesus Christ and his incarnation. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the promises God made to Israel. He is in perfect conformity and continuation with the Torah. He enfleshes the Torah, but he also goes beyond the words themselves to show us something beyond those words. Jesus is the word made flesh because the in, he is the incarnation of the God who speaks the word. Catholic prayer has this incarnational sense to it. Just as Jesus didn't contradict scripture but enriched and perfected it, Catholic prayer enriches and completes what is given to us in scripture. We trust, of course, that scripture is God's word to his people, but we also assert that God's word to his people is not exhausted by scripture. I don't want to make too much of this, but the Catholic Church is frequently charged by Protestant Christians as detouring from Scripture in her prayers. And to that, I'll assert, along with the Church, that simply because we're not always using the words of Scripture doesn't mean that we're outside of the Word. The context for the Gloria is one we might not think much about when we're at Mass. It might not dawn on us that the Gloria takes us back to the Nativity of our Lord at every Mass. But it does. And think of this. The nativity occurs at the beginning of our Lord's life on earth. So it makes sense that we recall his nativity towards the beginning of Mass. The Mass can be understood as presenting Jesus' life from the beginning. This means that as Mass progresses, we get further into Jesus' life on earth. In the Gloria, we mark Jesus' birth. In the gospel, we're at the point of his public manifestation and ministry among the people of Israel and their neighbors. At the Eucharist, we remember and represent his sacrifice on Calvary. And at the end of Mass, we are in the place of the apostles at Pentecost who have received Jesus' Holy Spirit and are empowered to proclaim and share Jesus with a world that is dying without him. Sometimes, especially when the world looks like it's falling apart especially quickly. Christians play the game of the imagination about how much better it would have been to have lived when Jesus walked the earth. 
about how we could have asked him directly about the most pressing and most difficult issues we face, and how much solace we'd derive from Jesus's immediate earthly bodily presence. The Mass puts those games and notions to rest, because in and through the Mass, we do have Jesus's life, all of it at our disposal. One of the truths the Church is both privileged and burdened to proclaim is that those who lived 2,000 years ago are at no advantage over us, and that each of us wasn't born 2,000 years ago. We are alive now, specifically to be leavened for the earth now. As disheartening or discouraging as our world can be, it was into this world and not the one of a hundred or a thousand or two thousand years ago that each of us was placed. And we have to believe that our placement now is not accidental. We all have a vocation to proclaim the gospel, but we have that vocation in a specific time and place. Our point of contact with eternity takes place at the Mass, when the liturgy of the ages is made manifest before our eyes and ears and hearts, but we're meant to take the sustenance and nourishment we receive at Mass out into the world, a world that's stuck in time and that has no other means except the faint traces of memory and hazy speculation of the imagination to touch the past and the future. Out of everything that exists on earth today, only the Mass brings past and future into the present in a real and substantial way. But going back to that first Christmas, what were those shepherds doing that night as they watched over their flocks? Why does Luke tell us about a few shepherds in a land that's positively brimming with them? The answer is that these shepherds weren't just watching over any sheep. These were shepherds whose flocks belonged to the temple in Jerusalem. The sheep of these flocks were the ones that would be sacrificed each Passover as the fulfillment of the perpetual ordinance God commanded to the Israelites in Egypt. These shepherds safeguarded and looked over the sheep whose blood and whose flesh delivered Israel from slavery. And if it's not clear where this is going, think about the Mass. The Mass makes present the body and blood of the eternal and everlasting Passover sacrifice, the body and blood of the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This sacrifice doesn't just fulfill the ordinance the people of Israel were obliged to observe. It perfects and completes that sacrifice. Glory to God in the highest because of what he has done, liberated his people from slavery to Egypt, and of what he will do, liberate his people from slavery to sin. Glory to God for the Lamb, the Son of God becomes, the Lamb whose death and resurrection the Mass shows us, and which the Church has the solemn duty to proclaim. In the face of so much goodness, the only thing we can possibly do in response is to adore and worship and glorify God. Gloria. Generally, we say the Gloria on Sundays and on Holy Days, but there are times and seasons when we do not say it. The Gloria is omitted during Advent and Lent. These seasons of anticipation see the Gloria excised from the Mass, and since Advent is coming up, it's a good time to reflect a bit on why that is. At first glance, it can seem as though the omission of the Gloria withholds adoration and praise from God, and that thought can be jarring. 
The Mass is all about the worship of God by the people of God. So why would we mute our worship? It's not an unreasonable question. The answer to the question can only be found in the fact that the Church's sense of time is meant to be considered in totality and not just piece by piece. The Catholic understanding of time differs from that of the secular world. Time in secular understanding is like a ray in geometry. It's got a starting point and it proceeds linearly and directly, indefinitely in one direction. The Catholic sensibility is a little bit different. Sure, time had a beginning point, but we also hold that time will have an end point too. The glorious return of Jesus Christ at the end of time. But the Catholic grasp on time also sees a certain kind of cyclicity to it, a cascade of seasons that repeat year after year after year, seasons that have more to do with the life of Christ and the Church than they have to do with the agricultural seasons and positions of the heavenly bodies. The Church's liturgical cycle begins with the season of Advent, goes on to Christmas, then ordinary time, then Lent, then Easter, and then ordinary time again. At the beginning, we get three fairly short seasons, whose themes and tones then get repeated in longer seasons. Advent in some way anticipates Lent. Christmas in some way anticipates Easter. The first shorter part of ordinary time prepares for the longer part. The point is that these seasons and times don't just refer to themselves. They also refer to other times and seasons in the year. You can't have Christmas without Advent, and you most definitely cannot have Easter without Lent. That's why it's a theological absurdity for the Christmas decorations to be put up in stores and neighborhoods in November and Easter bunnies in February. You can't celebrate if you don't prepare to celebrate. In churchy words, you can't feast unless you fast. We withhold the Gloria from Advent and Lent not because we want to diminish God's glory, but because such withholding serves to build anticipation for the great glorias that get sung during Christmas and Easter. Just as your appetite gets sharper when you eat after a period of fasting, your appreciation of God's glory becomes more refined when you pray the Gloria after not having sung it for a while. And this rhythm of fasting and feasting is a part of the Church's life. You're expected to have fasted before you attend Mass to increase your desire for the Eucharist. You're expected to fast during Lent so that your zeal for Christ grows and you celebrate Easter with the force it deserves. The canonical fast before Mass is one hour. You're to abstain from eating or drinking anything but water for an hour before Mass begins. Prior to the liturgical reforms of the 1960s, the canonical fast was to take nothing, not even water, by mouth starting at midnight the day you attend Mass. That might explain why early morning Masses were such a large part of the lives of so many Catholics who were alive before the 1960s. But whenever Mass does something different, the Church is inviting us to ask why that difference is there and what it means. Mass doesn't explain itself as it's going on, so answering the question is something we need to be prepared to investigate. Those differences are also, if you've got young children, perfect opportunities to talk with them and to ask them about it. Kids like routines, 
and are usually pretty perceptive when routines are upset. So I think it's a good idea when Advent starts to make these differences part of your discussions with them about the Mass. If you haven't been diligent about keeping the fast before Mass, start. And if people in your family ask about it, because starting something new is a clear difference, be prepared to give an answer. Not just an answer that says, this is what the Church tells us, but one that expresses how much richer the feast is after we've fasted. We're about to be fed with the best of food, but if you're already full of food, you're about to what you're about to receive might not seem that rich. I think this is one of the things in Catholic practice that really distinguishes us from many other Christians and from the world at large. We should, as part of our regular practice of the faith, fast. We should, just as part of what we do as Catholics, deny ourselves not just certain foods, but many things that can soften our senses and dull our appreciation. We're not fasting from things that are bad for us. We should always jettison what's bad. We're delaying our satisfaction from lower things so that we can receive highest satisfaction from the highest of things. We shouldn't be showy about this, and God knows we shouldn't call attention to it or take pride in it. But we should get into the custom of fasting so that we can feast well. Our world is embroiled in richness, but so many people are weary and bloated with the constant ingestion of such rich things. The answer to this isn't to try to prepare things even richer and more bloating, but to empty ourselves. Leisure and entertainment have become highly prized goods in our culture, such that we have more leisure and more entertainment than any people at any time in the history of the world. But people aren't content, and they're not satisfied. The world tells them to consume more, much more. The church tells them to consume less, much less. Today, there are two days of the year when the church obliges the faithful to fast, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. It was not always so. There used to be many more days of fasting such that about 20% of the year was spent by Catholics performing ritual fasts. We've lost many of the benefits of that practice because so many of us are out of practice. And I'll suggest that if you're able, building greater spiritual health calls for greater fasting. Now, obviously, I'm not a doctor, and I wouldn't make any recommendations about what and how much you eat without talking to people who know about the body. But fasting doesn't always ha have to be about food. We can fast from entertainments. We can fast from conversations. We can fast from monetary expenditure. And the time and money and energy we gain from those fasts can be supplied to those in greater need of them. Every Friday of the year used to be a day of fasting and abstinence in the Catholic Church. Not only wouldn't you eat meat, but you'd limit your intake of food on Fridays in commemoration of the day that Jesus died, and to prepare you for the Eucharistic fast that gets broken by the feast of Jesus' body and blood. The obligation to fast every Friday was lifted in the 1960s. Most Catholics know that. But what many don't know is that Catholics are still obliged to do some sort of penance on Fridays. That might be fasting and abstaining, 
But if it's not, you're expected to adopt some penitential practice of prayer, charity, adoration, or devotion on Fridays. And after hearing me say this, you can never again say you didn't know. And I'm inviting you, as a way of forming your faith, to adopt something on Fridays as a penance. Keep a holy hour. Pray the rosary or the chaplet of divine mercy. Use the money from your morning coffee as an offering to Catholic charities. There are hundreds of possibilities, but I'm going to suggest that we make Fridays fast days again. After four Sundays of not saying the Gloria during Advent and six Sundays of not saying it during Lent, the first time we do say the Gloria after those seasons is supposed to be as startling as an explosion. Advent is coming, and Christmas after that. This year, whenever you go to Christmas Mass, sing the Gloria like you've been starving for it for the last month. That's what the Church means by not singing it in Advent, to make Christmas pop. For some of the prayers of the Mass, the Missal provides alternatives or options. The Gloria is not one of those prayers. The instruction for the Mass says it very clearly and very concisely. The text of this hymn may not be replaced by any other. If the Church specifies that a prayer must be prayed in a certain way, that means that way is the only worthy expression of the prayer and that it admits no alternatives. So for the Gloria, the best and only way to express it is what we sing or say at Mass. All of this flows from the scriptural font of the Gloria as the hymn of the angels at the birth of the Lord, and it should thrill us that because the Mass is timeless and makes the past present here and now, we get to join in that angelic song. Joining with that celestial choir and adoring God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is an enormous privilege, and we get to enjoy this privilege every Sunday. But there's another scriptural illusion within the Gloria, one that is just as privileged and just as thrilling, although this one might not be one we'd immediately sign up for were it offered to us. The language St. Luke uses to describe the vision the shepherds have out in those fields and which composes the Gloria is used one other time in the New Testament. It comes from the Acts of the Apostles when Stephen, one of the first deacons, is about to be stoned to death. As he's about to be martyred, St. Luke tells us that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In his martyrdom, Stephen has the same kind of vision the shepherds had, but with even more. Stephen sees with his eyes the entirety of the Gloria, not just its first lines. He sees the beatific vision, while the shepherds saw only the angels and heard of the glory of God. The shepherds are the first to have the gospel of the Incarnation proclaimed to them. Stephen is the first disciple after Pentecost to give his life because of the Incarnation, Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus. What this tells us, if we've got the ears to hear it, is that martyrdom is at the very core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that the beatific vision is granted to those who suffer and die for the faith of Jesus Christ and his church. The Gloria tells us that we are called to martyrdom, that the kind of martyrdom Stephen endured might be our lot too, and that we must be prepared to live and to die 
as Stephen did. This is something we can easily forget, or at least get confused about martyrs. When I taught in the high school, I would ask my students what a martyr is, and usually they'd say that a martyr is someone who dies for their faith. And while that's not incorrect, it doesn't tell the whole story. A martyr is not only someone who dies for the faith, a martyr is someone who lives for the faith, too. This is due to the fact that the Greek word martyr means witness. It's a legal term that comes from the law court. A witness is summoned by the court to testify to the truth. Remember when forming our faith covered the significance of the pew within the church, that the fact that we sit in pews means that we are participants in the legal proceedings as witnesses to the truth of the faith. The Gloria is another place we are called to witness to the truth that is the triune God. If we are to be Jesus' disciples, martyrdom is not optional. It might not be that our blood is spilled because of our testimony to the truth, but each of us can and must be witnesses to the truth of Christ to the world. Each of us has been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, both for our own benefit and for the benefit of others we encounter. Those others we encounter need to know why death and life in Christ is so important. In fact, the most important thing in our and their entire existence. Those others might depend on your witness because no one else has or will witness to Jesus Christ to them. When St. Francis Xavier was evangelizing India and Japan, he wrote a letter to St. Ignatius of Loyola. In it, he lamented that India and Japan were full of people, full of souls who thirsted for the gospel, but that not all of them were able to hear the gospel because there was only one Francis and so many souls to be converted. St. Francis begged Ignatius to send missionaries, students from the University of Paris, to India so that the work of evangelization could be done in earnest, saying that many of these people were not Christians because there's no one to make them Christians. They are falling out of heaven and into hell thanks to you. Francis's words might be hyperbolic here, but what if they're not? What if souls really are at stake? And our responsibility as baptized and confirmed members of the body of Christ isn't just to contribute to our own salvation, but to that of others as well. What if I had the ability to present the very opportunity for eternal salvation to others? Well, that's just the thing. We do contribute to the salvation of others, and we do have the ability to present the opportunity for eternal salvation to others. God can and does use us as the voices that speak to others, not in a vague and general and abstract way, but in a specific and personal way. The call by name made to me when I was baptized was a summons to the witness stand with the obligation to tell the truth of the Catholic faith to all those listening to me, and woe to me if I stay silent. Souls really are at stake. The Gloria is a prayer of praise and adoration of God, but there's this counterpoint of martyrdom within it as well. Our singing or chanting or saying the Gloria is a kind of ratification of the call to martyrdom. But it's not like we have to invent the content of the witness we give to others. It's all contained in the Gloria itself. 
the text of the Gloria tells us about God's magnificence and then describes what Jesus Christ has done and who he is. That's the truth to which we testify. It's illustrative to tell others about our own story of conversion, but that's the cherry on top. The Sunday is what Jesus has done and who he is. That's what people need to know. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is merciful. He alone is the Holy One, the Lord, the Most High. That's the truth that makes us martyrs, and the whole of the Christian life flows from that truth. There's a useful distinction we sometimes use when talking about martyrdom. Red martyrdom is the shedding of blood in witness to the faith. Red martyrs are those men and women, boys and girls, who have been killed precisely because they are Christians, and the ones doing the killing hate the Christian faith. Father Stanley Rother, Father Maximilian Colby, and Maria Goretti are red martyrs. White martyrdom is when we lose the esteem of the world because of our Christian faith. When people in the world look at us and judge us to be unworthy of their attention or consideration because they hate the church. For most of us, red martyrdom is only a remote possibility. That I might lose my head or my hide out of hatred for the faith is a slim possibility in Oklahoma in 2023. White martyrdom is much, much more likely, and I'll propose that it's very likely. The teachings of the Catholic Church are not fashionable, and those who hold the Catholic and apostolic faith are increasingly being judged as closed-minded bigots who embrace an antiquated and benighted creed. A much larger percentage of us will suffer in this way, and the Gloria declares that we are prepared for martyrdom, regardless of its color. It's easy for me to say that if it ever came to it, I would remain steadfast to my faith and would refuse to deny my Lord, that I would accept the crown of martyrdom and, if I had to, to surrender my life. That's easy to say. But if the words ever had to be backed up by actions, I know how cowardly I am. I know how I flee from pain. I know how fickle I am. I know how easy it would be to flee and how difficult it would be to remain. So in addition to a kind of pledge that I will accept martyrdom, the Gloria is also a tacit plea for the grace and the strength to remain with Jesus in my hour of temptation and despair. And yes, maybe that hour sees a gun pointed at me or a sword at my neck, but that hour more likely will include someone I know or have met expressing skepticism or disapproval of the faith, and the temptation isn't to surrender my life, but to equivocate, to say that sin isn't that bad or that some teaching isn't that important. The next time you're praying the Gloria, maybe be mindful of all of this and deliberately ask for God's strength to withstand the temptation to resist martyrdom, however it presents itself in your life. The last thing I'll say about the Gloria is one I'm not quite sure how to describe. It's also something that most of us in our time and place probably don't perceive very easily. That makes this facet of the Gloria really difficult to talk about, so I'll do the best I can. The best way I can say it is that the Gloria is poetic. 
Many of us, myself included, aren't really fluent with poetry, so we can compress everything that a poem expresses into the mechanics of the poem, meter, rhyme scheme, convention. An easy example here is something most of us learned at some point when we were in school, a haiku. If you remember anything about a haiku, it's probably that it's a poem with 17 total syllables divided into lines of five, seven, and five syllables. The danger is thinking that any collection of words that respects this structure qualifies as a haiku. But the horizon of imagination that colors and forms and shapes the haiku is much, much more than an exercise in counting syllables. There's an elegance conveyed in a haiku that makes constructing one like a work of art, not as a work of mere fabrication. I can lump words and syllables together, but even if I come up with an arrangement of syllables that satisfies the convention, that doesn't mean my arrangement is really a poem. Recently, I read a conversion story called Night's Bright Darkness. It was written by an English woman named Sally Reed, who is a professional poet and who converted to the Catholic faith after a lifetime of atheism in 2010. With maybe the exception of St. Augustine's Confessions, this is the best conversion story I've ever read. And I think a big part of what makes it so good is that Sally Reed sees the world, sees herself, and sees her experiences in the world as poetry. Poetry isn't just a way to make things sound nice. It's a way of understanding things. It interlaces allegory and symbol and imagination to interpret the way things are and the way things seem. Poetry isn't just reporting the news, and it's not mere description. It peels back the superficial layer to peek into the heart and what is found there. Artificial intelligence can never be poetic because AI is programmed. Poetry is not a program. If the Gloria is poetic, it captures all of these layers, the symbolic, the allegorical, the transcendent, the experiential, in concise language whose density is considerable. And that's exactly what the Gloria does. Consider as an example the setting of what the Gloria proclaims. It begins in heaven, glory to God in the highest. Then the setting shifts to earth, on earth, peace to people of goodwill, and it describes what Jesus has done on earth. It finishes with the setting reverting back to heaven. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. You alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High. In 127 words, we are transported to the very throne of glory upon which God sits in heaven. We descend with Christ in his incarnation to earth and the work he accomplishes during his earthly life, and then ascend with him back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And check out what happened in these 127 words of the Gloria. We went from heaven to earth and back to heaven, just like the Son of God did. In the Gloria, we get to accompany Jesus Christ in his accomplishment of our salvation. It's not merely that the Gloria tells us about God. The very structure of the poem mimics the economy of salvation and the action of Christ. The words of the poem are Christological, but so is the structure. Remember, everything in the Mass is about Jesus, and Jesus is revealed both in the words of the Gloria, but also in the way that the Gloria is composed. I'll admit that stuff like this really grabs me, and that as I think about stuff like this, my brain is in overdrive. 
It's stuff like this that convinces me that the Mass really is a divine invention and that we receive it and celebrate it as a gift because I'm not sure human ingenuity can come up with something so sublimely and decadently saturated with Christ all by itself. How could your next Mass not be your best Mass, knowing that in praying the Mass, you aren't merely hearing about what Christ has done as the Son of God and Redeemer of the world, but that you're also along for the ride? Because of how lavish the theology of the Gloria is, the most appropriate expression during Mass is for the Gloria to be sung, with instrumental accompaniment if it's at all possible, and the more the better. The Gloria is one of those times that the swelling music of the people should blow the doors and the roof off of the church. Imagine a symphony of voices and trumpets and bells and timpanies thundering in their volume, but absolutely united in their chorus of praise. That's what the Gloria should do. I spoke about sacred silence a few episodes ago. The Gloria is not a moment of silence. Because here's the thing. The Gloria isn't just human praise and adoration of God. The Gloria is the participation of all of creation in the worship of its creator. At this moment in the Mass, it's not just our voices that are heard, but the voices of all things that exist. In the book of Job, Job says, But now ask the beasts to teach you, the birds of the air to tell you, or speak to the earth to instruct you, and the fish of the sea to inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of God has done this? All of creation bears witness to the goodness of the Creator, and the Gloria is creation's chance to acknowledge that goodness. That's why there should be instruments. God made the metals and the woods and the membranes used for the instruments, and they sing out in praise to the Lord. God made us and our voices, and they sing out in praise to the Lord. And as the church is vibrating with this song, the flames of the candles flicker around, the smoke from the incense that's lingering swirls around. There's this crescendo of movement and sound all in praise of God. Everyone and everything in the church participates in it somehow. If you ever want to experience this kind of majesty in the Gloria, go to the Easter Vigil. This is the most solemn Mass the Church celebrates, and it starts after the sun sets on Holy Saturday. It's not a usual Vigil Mass on a Saturday evening. This one has all sorts of unique features, and one of them is that the Mass begins in total darkness. All the lights are off as Mass begins. When the Gloria is sung is the moment that all the lights are turned on, an explosion of light that gives us a sliver of a sense of what the explosion of life must have been like in Jesus' resurrection. The church instantly goes from darkness to light, the bells ring, the trumpets blare, and if you're not moved by it, check your pulse, because you might be dead. We're about at the end of this episode, and if you've been with me since the beginning, you're aware that the pacing of forming our faith through the Mass might be described as glacial. I mean, I've recorded like six hours of formation so far, and we just, just got through the Gloria. At this rate, it'll be 2025 before I get to the recession at the end of Mass. Part of this might be because I nerd out about the Mass and could talk about it for much longer than most people might want to hear. But another part, and I think it's the main part, is that the Mass is so deep, 
It's so rich. It's so layered with meaning that racing through it would cause us to miss things that really help us to become saints. Going too quickly would rob the people of God from this seedbed of holiness into which they're planted. And if it's taken me this long to say the stuff I'm actually saying, imagine the things I'm leaving out. The layers of meaning so deep that only a few of the most ardent scholars and liturgists know about them. The Mass runs deep indeed, and the fact that we'll never exhaust the depths of the Mass might be a source of distress, but we can be consoled by the fact that we'll have all of eternity to plumb, plumb these depths in the Kingdom of Heaven. That's what we were made for. That's the goal of the heroism we're called to live. So please, don't ever settle for anything less. You can find more episodes of Forming Our Faith on the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast.